This is The American System, and this is a four-minute song summary of today's show. 1921 was the year, seems like yesterday to me. Let me tell you about what happened then, back in the mine country. We were fighting hard to build a union, cause at 40 cents a ton, there was no way to feed a family when the mining day was done. The strike had lasted for a year when they shot down Smiling Sid. He was a lawman who stood up for us miners. That's the only crime he ever did. A hundred miners locked up with no trial. They're in Mingo Town. But the last straw came in Sharples when they gunned the women down. Here in the hills of West Virginia Hit the Battle of Blair Mountain We shouted through the hillsides In every Union Hall We're marching on to Mingo Teach them a lesson once and all Commandeered every freight train to the Kentucky line. Took every car that crossed our path and all the guns and ammo we could find. The Union leaders tried to stop us. Mother Jones told us to turn back. But we had learned ourselves from the gun thugs. There's a time to talk and a time to attack. We had no leader. We didn't need one We all knew our way through Logan County We all knew once we got there We're gonna hang Sheriff Chapin from a sour apple tree We're marching on to Mingo Ten thousand men and counting Here in the hills of West Virginia At the Battle of Blair Mountain we fought them the front was ten miles wide every cop and scab in West Virginia was there on the other side they dropped explosives from their airplanes such a thing you never saw they shot us with machine guns it was the operators law we dug trenches and wore helmets that we brought from the Argonne. All the way from France to Logan, we fought from dusk to dawn. President Harding sent in the army, and we left our line to them. But the Broadcasting from the West banks Virginia of the Potomac in the nation's capital, the American system is the revolutionary tradition of supporting we production against speculation, cutting through all political divisions. We remember the most suppressed American traditions and economics that once created the highest standard of living the world has ever known. This is your reporter, Daniela Walls. That was 
David Rovix giving a summary of tonight's topic, the Battle of Blair Mountain. He is a friend of tonight's guest, Evan Papp, and I am delighted to be joined by Evan Papp. And we're going to go back to August 1921, the Battle of Blair Mountain. And when I saw Evan, that you were actually traveling down to Charleston, West Virginia for this 100-year anniversary of what it uh, was the first and biggest labor uprising. I was excited, and I, and I wrote to you immediately. I said, please, please, let's cover this as soon as you get back from Charleston. You are Evan Papp, who helped found the United Front Against Austerity. You also have my other favorite podcast besides our own at Empathy Media Lab. Do you want to give the web address? Sure. It's empathymedialab.com. I also went down to Charleston, West Virginia as a network correspondent with the Labor Radio Podcast Network, which is an affiliation of over 130 podcasts, radio stations focusing on labor in over five countries. And we're growing that as well. Where do we find the labor um, podcast? Say it labor again. Ra- mm-hmm. It is at laborradionet.org. Oh, okay, great. So I'll, I'm going to put links to all of this in our headlines because I think it's really important. I also want all of our listeners here because you're on Podbean too. And I want all of our subscribers to go over and like your podcast. Their phone can send them an alert whenever you drop a new episode. Always appreciated. I'm delighted to join you on this wonderful American System TV. It's, it's been quite a journey and uh, following you and Webster and everyone else that you've been bringing on. I'm very happy to be here. Oh, that's nice. I mean, we've been on the journey together, though, so to speak. So you've been there through every step of it. That, so thank you, because you were in UFA before I ever arrived. Uh, I had founded Tax Wall Street Party, and I was out on the street collecting signatures for candidates. And somebody from UFAA took one of my pamphlets. Then you guys called me and we merged. Then I was introduced to Webster and here we are. So please, I'm going to go through a couple of things here to introduce this. And then can you correct me if I if I get anything wrong? So this is the Battle of Blair Mountain. This is where you were, why you were in Charleston, right? The fact that it falls on Labor Day as well, obviously makes it more symbolic. Oh, yeah. And the 100 year anniversary. But this Blair Mountain battle, right, it it kicks off everything. Everything we know about organized labor in America comes out of this multi-racial uprising. Out of this comes a guy named John L. Lewis. He's a really, really famous guy. We need to know who he is. He was the um, big boss of the United Mine Workers in the 1930s. So the Battle of Blair Mountain is 1921. Um, Out of this, like I said, we get John L. Lewis. And he was such a big spokesman for labor that he was so powerful that he could tell Roosevelt what to do sometimes. John L. Lewis, if you look him up, you recognize him. He's got these caterpillar eyebrows and a strong jaw. And like I said, he's really, really famous. Trumpka then came out of this union, the United Mine Workers. And Lewis... He founded the CIO, which is a Congress of Industrial Workers. They organized millions of industrial workers in 1911. So 10 years 
before this labor battle we're going to talk about today, Lewis was hired by a guy named Samuel Gompers. People remember that name. So here we are. So Gompers is the head of the AFL part of the AFL-CIO. Gompers is the president of the American Federation of Labor. That's the AFL. And then his disciple, Lewis, goes on later to found the CIO part. And then they obviously merge. Yeah. And I am also, um, in the last several years, I actually just came across this battle of Blair Mountain. And I think a big part of this story is how much of our history and of what the labor struggles are in our past has been taken away from us and has been taken out of our education. So part of my own experience going to Charleston, it was almost a labor pilgrimage to be able to go on the march with the United Mine Workers of America, the UMWA, as they retrace the steps of these miners who essentially were fighting a pitched battle to help organize this region in southwestern West Virginia. If I could uh, go a little bit into why the battle happened, yes, um, yes. I can move into that. Mm-hmm. When we look at the Battle of Blair Mountain, I think today it provides a great symbolic struggle that can be useful for us as we're organizing. What's going on in the 1920s or before the 1920s? You have obviously World War One. You have the Spanish flu pandemic has destroyed many lives. You have a lot of uprisings around the world. You have the Spartacus uprising in Germany after World War I. You have obviously everything going on in what was once Tsarist Russia with the Bolsheviks. And you have a lot of unrest in the United States, everything from the Tulsa race massacre, and then this labor struggle in Southwestern West Virginia. The United Mine Workers of America, the UMWA, was doing a lot of organizing through mines throughout the United States. But this one region in southwestern West Virginia was so coal rich that if all of the other mines went on strike, this unorganized section of southwestern West Virginia would be able to produce enough coal that could be able to outlast a strike that of 70 percent of the country on on actual mining. So what was so strategic about this area, it was unorganized at that time. A little town called Matewan, which is right on the border of Kentucky, there was a battle in 1920. And so much of the area was ran by coal company towns. This little town of Matewan, though, was essentially outside of any company town organization. There's a great movie by John Sayles called Matewan stream it for free on YouTube. And I really encourage everyone to take a take a look at it. Wonderful movie. Did you put a link, I noticed, to the Mate One movie in that write-up you did on Empathy Media Lab? I did. Okay, I did. okay, so good. So it's that, in, it's in there. When, so when I link to your page, people will find the movie too. Great. What was happening in this area as the United Mine Workers were trying to organize these mines was that the town of Mate One was ran by the sheriff, Sid Hatfield, and uh, Mayor Cable Testerman, and they actually sided with the mine workers who were organizing against these company towns. A lot of the union miners, or the miners that were trying to unionize in this area, were kicked out of their company houses and got evicted. They went on strike. The company town with the mine guard system, 
started really harassing them as they were in these tent cities striking from going into the mines. How did that work, a company town? So essentially, the company town was owned by the mine and the mine owners. They would bring in workers from around the area that were oftentimes in rural poor whites. They would bring in the former freed slaves, and then they would bring in a lot of Eastern Europeans. And they would have essentially trying to get these different groups to fight against each other for a race to the bottom. And in these company towns, they would buy all of, uh, excuse me, in these company towns, they would own the everything from the housing to the company store to the company post office. And so people would go there to work. And if they ever stepped out of line, they could get evicted from their house and fired and thrown on the street. They oftentimes were indebted from the very beginning because they were given a place to stay on credit. They were given tools on credit. And they were essentially given script, which was a type of company currency that couldn't be exchanged for US dollars, but could buy food from the company grocery store would would ultimately make it virtually impossible to get out of the debt from these company towns. Then the song, there's the famous song everybody would know, it's 16 tons, what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt, right? St. Peter, don't you call me because I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. That's, that's a song about what you're talking about that people will know. Exactly. And the, the script is, were, were only redeemable at the company store. Some of the grievances of the miners and their family, they were working in very dangerous conditions. Between 1901 and 1921, for for example, in West Virginia Department of Mines, some 6,700 men and boys died on the job um, in different fires, explosions, accidents. And there was also this very oppressive mine guard system that any scent of labor organizing and, and potential unionization of these workers the mine guard system would be very violent and sometimes kill organizers that were trying to organize these workers. They would be going through mail because all the mail would be going through the company town post office. So in some ways, we're starting to see parallels of these company towns coming back into our contemporary life in, in different places. And we can yes. kind of go there. I'm glad, I'm glad that you mentioned yes. that. We can go there anytime you want, but y yes, important place to book for us to bookmark. I was hoping you'd go there. Yeah, keep going. In Matewan, uh, Sid Hatfield and uh, his deputy, Ed Chambers, fought against the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency, similar to the Pinkerton Detective Agency that was working to protect capital and fighting against any union organizing. Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency was supporting a lot of the company towns that were terrorizing the workers. There was a gun shootout that's caught, captured in the movie Matewan, where Sid Hatfield and uh, his deputy and some miners end up killing many of the Baldwin Feltz detectives who were in that town. And they became local folk heroes for the next year. And they were brought to court and they were their the charges were overturned and they were never convicted. And as they were leaving court in August 1921, about a year after the Matewan battle, they got shot on the courthouse steps by Baldwin Feltz uh, detectives. 
And those detectives were let off. And that led to this great struggle that that really started to kick off what was what what has become known as the Battle for Blair Mountain. We can just talk a little bit um, more about about the battle. That, sure. As it took- yeah. Essentially, what happened as these miners who were in Maitwan who were, were who were organizing against the company towns, they were going on strike and they ended up getting put in jail. So a lot of the other organized workers were moving from different places from Charleston on down into the southwest through Boone County and Logan County and Mingo County to meet the company town sheriff of Logan County. And that's where this huge battle took place. And the miners were over 10,000, some said, and many different uh, police officers were deputized and brought in to fight the miners. And eventually the military was brought in. The entire mine uprising was put down. The Battle of Blair Mountain actually stood to as a great victory for the the mine owners at that time and the fact that the state of West Virginia, the governor, and a lot of the owners of this capital and of these mines were victorious. The United Mine Workers of America actually went from 50,000 to under 1,000 in the 1920s. And as you said earlier, it was revived in the 1930s with a lot of the New Deal legislation and very strong leadership like John Lewis. One one of the um, parts that I can't understand yet was Lou was Woodrow Wilson, who was the president at the time. Was he on the side of the miners or the bosses? Because he, he taught Woodrow Wilson um, tells uh, the tells Lewis right. So he Lewis is the head of the union at the time. He tells Lewis um, not to fight the government. Can fight the bosses, but not the government. And now we're talking about police officers being deputized when you were talking about that. I think Wilson was out at that time. It was Warren G. Harding, who was oh, president in was. 1921. And oh, okay. He, so it might have overlapped because I thought Wilson was still president in 1921. Maybe it's Harding. Okay. A lot of the miners also were World War I vets, and they also didn't want to start shooting on American troops. Okay. So they... They retreated, and a lot of the the mine organizing was actually crushed after that for the next decade. This is amazing history to read, right? Because this, this is not politically correct stuff. I, we were, I was um, listening to David Rovick's podcast that I was talking about in the beginning, and he was saying, that, I think this is an interesting point, he said, you won't hear about the stuff we're talking about today or when he covered this battle. And, you know, it's astonishing. You mentioned how few people know about this. It's just so buried. Remember when Biden highlighted the Tulsa massacre? They weren't really teaching it in school. So this multiracial class struggle stuff is buried. And David Rovix was saying, you're not going to see this on PBS and NPR, even those channels, because they tend to focus on lynching race on race battles. But you never hear about giant multi-thousand, you know, 35,000 people, 100,000 people that are that are multiracial against the bosses. We don't we don't know our our labor history. And this is the biggest one of them all that kicks off everything. And you know, it's like amazing too because it's not politically correct. 
you know, it's not the NPR version of labor that we know. Lewis, you start to read about what he did in the competition to stay in control of the mine workers union because there were socialists inside that wanted to take over control. These were like uh, vicious battles. He used armed force. You know, there was propaganda against the socialists, which we call red baiting, ballot stuffing. <laughs> they just went in there and were like, oh, hell no, and stuffed the ballots with their own people. So you could say these aren't good guys, but they were fighting for control to define the American labor movement as they wanted it defined, not as being socialist and, and what have you. A lot, of, a lot of the miners at the time were sympathetic to socialism, and they wanted to maintain control. So these guys didn't play by the rules. But the important part I wanted to stress was the multiracial labor fight. Anyway, it's not, it's not identity politics stuff. Absolutely. And you see that these mine operators would try to get these different labor classes to fight against each other based on the racial lines, based on ethnic lines. And a lot of the miners didn't take the bait. And they oftentimes, because they were working closely together in very dangerous conditions, ended up organizing and, and really sticking up for each other. And the UMWA, the United Mine Workers of America, was very uh, much is in support of organizing all of the different races and ethnicities. For instance, too, the uh, African-Americans who were in a lot of these mines, they it was one of the few jobs where they were paid equal with others because it wasn't based on hourly. It was based on the amount of ton of coal that you could bring out of the out of the mine. But to get to your your other kind of idea about why this is forgotten, there's so much false consciousness across the land. That's one of the reasons I really appreciate everything you're doing with the American system, raising class consciousness. The idea of our history being forgotten, there, there is tons of academic research about how this battle was taken out of the textbooks in West, of West Virginia, how labor struggles are oftentimes removed from the educational system. I think a part of what we need to do within the network of the American system is to remember our history, to educate ourselves as much as possible and, and educate as many people as we can around us and especially the children as well. You made a great point. You said that they didn't take the bait, you know, talking back in 1921, they didn't take the bait because they were working so closely together. And I wonder why it's so easy for us to take you know, this identity politics where the oligarchs are pitting us against each other based on race and gender. I, I wonder how, why it's so easy now. And that's just because, I guess, of social media and Hollywood. You know, all the causes are based on gender and race, not class issues. It's just it's sad. That we, it's like we went backwards. Well, I, I would always like to use the second American Revolution during the Civil War and kind of put things in context where the Civil War was won by the Union, but Reconstruction was never completed. The Confederates were never vanquished. In some ways, the Neo-Confederates have always been, you know, have been growing in, in our lifetime and in, in uh, the last 50 years. Something I like pointing out to is Lincoln's first inaugural, where he's focusing on this concept of the Union perpetuity of the union, if not expressed as the fundamental law of all national governments. And I like using this idea of the union and also the union of, of actual work and workers and, and labor, because the union is both a means of trying to increase 
uh, the to trying to improve better working conditions. And the union is also an end because it increases democracy in the workplace. And I think a lot of our identity politics, the ism, isms and schisms that divide us are um, part of uh, the neo-Confederate plan in being able to allow you know, the oligarchy and the ruling class to band together against the workers and coming together. Yeah. But when you say the neo-Confederate plan, people would think about like, you know, just Trumpism or Republicans, right? We, I mean, are, aren't we getting this a little bit from left-wing oligarchs that are, you know, the, like we, we had said, like the NPRs, I think a lot of NGOs and people we'd associate with, you know, funding left-wing causes are focusing on that kind of stuff too. But we are also seeing a militant labor movement right now, aren't we? A perfect storm of a lot of forces because you have right now your traditional strikes, like the Frito-Lay strike is pretty big. And um, people can just look that up, just put into uh, Twitter, search column, Frito-Lay strike. There's a lot of traditional strikes, and then they're coming together with a lot of other tensions. Kyle and I did the two parts on the vaccine mandate strikes, a few different elements coming together in a perfect storm. And so I wonder what we're going to see because people are withholding their labor at the moment. Well, definitely. There's that. I think we constantly have to be reaching out to each other, both as neighbors and in the workplace, because we're also dealing with these new systems of work that are being managed by these algorithms, as you can see in different types of Amazon warehouses, where they're not able to talk. Oftentimes, the workers are not able to talk to each other. They're separated and they're just based on a clock. If they take a bathroom break, they get docked pay and things like that. The gig war workers are often atomized and divided. A lot of the pandemic and the quarantining has created great isolation within the population. So we're also battling that. In some ways, the people are more fragmented than, than ever before. But when people are pushed to the edge of survival, that is the opportunity for people to come together and kind of get over their, their differences that may have been pushed on them based on race or religion or, and things like that. Well, that's, you brought up um, when people are pushed and you brought up an a obscure point that is maybe uh, plays into what's going on today because the workers who were part of this Blair Mountain uprising in 1921 were coming out of the 1918 Spanish flu. Right. And they're coming out of World War One. They're they're, you know, living in these horrendous working conditions. So these are people stretched thin by like a lot of different forces. Right. Pulling in all different directions. When when you have a big event, like armed rebellion, it usually is a it is a, a, a multitude of forces. Absolutely. Absolutely. What do you think, Evan, is the state of labor today right now? What are we looking at? Obviously, Richard Trumpka passing is kind of a huge change in the AFL-CIO. Liz Schuler is uh, right now the interim president, and she's going to be running to become the, the full president. And she comes from the building trades. She's, you know, very sharp. She She's very able leader. And then Sarah Nelson comes from the airline association, and she's a little more fiery, uh, maybe a little bit better spokesperson, but may not have the votes to actually become the the uh, full-time president of the AFL-CIO when the election happens, I believe, later next year. So 
that's going to be pretty interesting to see which direction the AFL-CIO goes. I'm looking, Liz Schuler. do you have any red flags or anything you might not like? Uh, I mean, I've, yeah, I've met her through the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We did some live streams around the election. She's very accessible. I think the question that some people have is they want a firebrand like Sarah Nelson to mm. really be able to, to organize and be a lightning rod for a lot of the workers. But it, it just looks like Liz Schuler has more political capital. And I think they're both very capable. It's obviously a new direction to finally have a, a female head of the AFL-CIO. Another kind of concept is uh, from this lady, Jane McAlevey, who's been very active in writing some books about labor organizing. She was big in the SEIU, helped develop the Nevada um, different the Nevada labor unions that are some of the, the strongest, most militant in the United States. And she talks about the importance of using the strike in strategic industries like logistics, transportation, healthcare, and education. So instead of thinking about trying to do a mass strike everywhere, if you can get everything from Amazon to healthcare workers and teachers all to be able to band together to, for demands, you, that's where you can actually have specific uh, policy demands that can be actualized through the organization of, of these different labor groups. It would also be geographical. You can look at specific areas where there are transportation hubs and being able to work with the healthcare workers and teachers to be able to try to get these strategic industries to work together to push the policy framework forward for better policies for the workers, for labor to go into more investment in infrastructure and production. Well, you're, you're, you've made your life's work, especially in the last couple of years, working with the Labor Radio podcast, you know, to cover all these labor struggles. What was your honest opinion about that controversial two-part series Kyle and I did where how maybe these vax mandates are going to play into or, or be kind of a spark, even if it's not the spark we want for people hitting the streets and there being, you know, people withholding their labor, disrupting supply chains, big changes on the horizon. In, in some ways, the people of the United States and around the world, there's tremendous pushback for a lot of these mandates. As you see in places like in France, you have Le Pen, who's surging. You have a lot of right-wing movements that are very much against the mandates, and they are taking advantage of the incompetence of a lot of these center-left or even like center finance groups from Macron to Prime Minister Trudeau and, and other groups that are, are pushing these, these mandates. But I think we'll, we'll have to see if people are going to be pushed in the corner and aren't willing to follow these mandates, then that definitely is going to create a lot of instability. And who knows where that could lead? It could lead to greater fascism. It could lead to greater organizing of labor. Right. The, the entire reason for me bringing this, that, that subject up was because it, it is tending to push countries like Canada and France toward the furthest right candidate that they have. Right. I'm looking at uh, the LA Times from yesterday, and it says that the firefighters union and the police union are, for, are joining together to form a larger organization to battle the mandates out in California. They're, they're willing to walk, and we can't lose firemen, and we can't lose policemen at the moment, especially, you know, with the fires, and we can't lose any healthcare workers. And then 
And then they're talking about bringing it bigger and joining with the healthcare workers. So we've got EMS, fire, police, nurses, doctors. I don't want what was starting out at the beginning of Biden's term as a militant labor movement in the traditional sense for better workplace conditions and wages. We were seeing that with the Amazon workers in Bessemer. We were seeing that. And now I'm worried that that, that energy is going to be usurped into that demand, right? That's the demand that the news will cover. Definitely. And some of the union, uh, unions actually have pushed back. Like the postal union has said, you know, we do not want mandates uh, for the, the management to just come and tell us what we need to do without negotiating with us. We're not going to accept it. So I believe, as Biden said, all government workers had to take a vaccine. The postal union and the postal workers were actually able to get a waiver for that. Yeah, they, this this hasn't necessarily gone to negotiation with a lot of unions, but I couldn't find one union who who didn't declare pushback, who didn't put out a statement and say, we're not going to go for this and we're going into negotiation with the government. So that that's a big concern of mine. Absolutely. I agree wholeheartedly. And I guess to look at some things within the labor movement as well that we can be I think trying to push forward outside of the the mandates is obviously the PRO Act, the uh, Protect the Right to Organize Act, is something that can provide tremendous benefits for all workers to to continue to organize. So the PRO Act is another piece of legislation that uh, is in Congress right now. It it's passed the House twice. It probably won't pass the Senate, but this is something that would really help the ability of, of workers' rights to join the union, no, negotiate for higher wages and benefits, improve a safer workplace. Why do people want the uh, PRO Act is there's so many of these so-called anti-union right-to-work states that say that anyone who, um, that no one can be forced to actually pay union dues. And they frame it as a, a lot of these right-wingers will frame it as like, you know, you shouldn't have a union, you should be free to pay who you want and just kind of free ride um, a lot of the benefits that are attributed to unions. So I think the PRO Act is is obviously a great piece of legislation, but it doesn't look like there's going to be that much movement going on with that uh, at this time, unfortunately. I think another thing to consider, though, is also, you know, looking forward at in U.S. foreign policy, I mean, I would just love to see a pro-labor foreign policy, and we would obviously have to push back on a lot of the transnational corporations based in the United States that use sweatshop labor to reimport goods into this country. But imagine the United States being a leader on very high standards of, of pay, of wage, of, of workplace safety, and using that to actually organize different countries and different workers in throughout throughout the world and to to bring up the actual pay of workers um whether it be in china whether it be in the us whether it be in saudi arabia or, or elsewhere that's something i i'm also very interested in kind of working with a lot of groups to keep focusing on why we need a, a pro-labor policy that oftentimes is overlooked in the national security halls of power that's super interesting i have today's headline American airline pilots citing fatigue plan to protest. And I'm seeing, God, it's every industry. There's a lot on strike here. I have um, the APA allied 
Pilots Association, and it's different than uh, ALPA. They are, see how many pilots are, uh, they represent 13,400 American airline pilots. So we could see 13,000 going on strike. You've got a combination of overwork. We have a labor shortage, right? So companies and multinationals are pushing their workers to the brink, and that's going on in every you know every big industry. But so I, I would like you, to steer it to the right demands. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Do you want to talk a little bit about you being on the picket lines growing up, father going on strike, and what mm-hmm. that ha- what happened to your family through yeah, that process? Sure. Do you want me to summarize it, or do you want to ask some questions? However you yeah, want. Yeah, so, yeah, what, what was it about and what was your experience and how old were you and, and all those details? Well, if people remember, the big beginning or the decline in the standard of living was there was, there was a marker placed with the, air, uh, the um, air traffic controller strike, right? So that was, God, well, that was in the 80s. And it wasn't until, what year was it? I don't remember the exact year when Eastern Airlines went on strike. It was either the late 80s or the early 90s. But the air traffic controller strike was well before that. But it was a harbinger, right? And this was Reagan and Bush Sr.'s deregulation, right? So I think our family knew when I was very little that when the air traffic controllers went on strike... It was the beginning of, you know, the end for a way of life for us. We had Frank Lorenzo, a Wall Street, kind of a corporate raider. He took over Eastern Airlines. And I can't remember the guy who was the CEO. Borman. Borman. Borman was great. He was the CEO of Eastern Airlines before Lorenzo took it over. So Borman was an ace World War II fighter pilot. Borman said, I won't live any differently than my workers. I won't take more money than any of my pilots get paid. And Borman was in solidarity with the workers as the CEO. And now we know what CEOs of airlines are like, right? My dad retired without a pension because, you know, the CEOs, he he went on to to retire with United. He was one of the lucky ones that got a job again. Many didn't after the strike. Over the years, I remember the CEOs were taking more and more. And then sometime in the late, God, in the 2000s, it was just the early 2000s. It was just wild when they were getting, you know, these $30 million bonuses, $50 million bonuses. People remember that kind of stuff. But Borman never did any of that kind of stuff. So here comes Wall Street corporate raider. And people say that Oliver Stone's movie Wall Street when they talked about Blue Star Airlines, if people remember that, Martin Sheen was a mechanic for Blue Star Airlines, that he based that off of Eastern Airlines. So the Eastern strike was very famous, but there were other strikes going on simultaneously when the Eastern pilots and the flight attendants, everybody finally walked out when... um, Lorenzo just kept pushing and pushing and stripping down the airline. And, you know, his plan was to just strip it down and sell it off for parts. Trump, remember Trump took the Eastern shuttle from New York to Washington, D.C. But um, we ended up, <clears throat> we had to, so I grew up in New York City. 
before it was expensive, my neighborhood was, <laughs> was all the streets were like burnt out down in the village. That was when, um, you know, it's embarrassing. Now you could get a Soho loft. It was like people were squatting back then. And we used to make fun of kids who lived in Soho lofts in PS3. My elementary school is like, you're so poor, you live in a Soho loft. So that's how things have changed. So we moved from New York City down to Florida where the strike headquarters was because my dad was one of the heads of the Alpa Union. I spent three years, uh, you know, in and out of school because my dad dragged me along from the picket line to, uh, I used to call it congressing, was lobby, he went to lobby Congress. Um, he was friends with a few congressmen and senators from his days in the military because he was a lifelong um, Navy, Navy pilot who became a commercial airline pilot. So he happened to know a few guys from the Navy and had some connections in Congress. And we used to go up and try to talk to them. I remember guys that were even old friends of his. I knew then I used to play on the floor with my toys and the cold marble floors. My dad would sit there trying to convince the congressman that he had served with to help us out. And I used to say to my dad, they don't care. They're not really listening to you. I remember knowing it was over before we even started. And my dad would say, don't say that. You've got to have hope. And I go, dad, they are just trying to get rid of you. We even had dinner. I mean, sorry, lunch in the, the hall where all the senators and congressmen eat together or the Congress eats together, Senate separate from Congress. But we'd have um, uh, lunch in the cafeteria with them. And they just were like being fake. I, I could see then that they were bought and paid for by Wall Street. So, especially Bush Sr. at the time, his, his goal was to deregulate and union bust. He was in the pocket of Frank Lorenzo. Wall Street. So that was a big shift from workers over to Wall Street. So I'm hoping we see this shift back the other direction. But yeah, I was on the picket line and then we joined up with, uh, nobody really realized at the time how many other big mass strikes were going on at the time, which were the steel workers were on strike, if I remember, the coal miners. And we used to find ourselves in these big mega strikes with like 30,000, 50,000 people where we had all these things like, you know, catfish cookouts and air balloons, you know, big air balloon rides and things like that for the kids. But they were these mega strikes. And we used to strike through the streets of towns and cities. It wasn't covered by the news. I remember that my dad was working really hard on trying to take out a one-page ad to bring attention to the strikes in the New York Times, and we had all the money to pay for it, and then some, and the New York Times wrote back to us and said, we're sorry, but we don't cover that type of thing. Yeah, we were completely shut out of any coverage. So that was what originally got me into uh, why I formed the Tax Wall Street Party. Anyway. Thanks for sharing that. So obviously, you, you talk a lot about the fact that the Democratic Party moved away from labor explicitly under Carter and just kept going through the 80s and Clinton and the new Democrats. We see that with Obama and we see a slight change with um, Biden really, you know, saying all the right things about labor and mm -hmm. uh, organized labor. And the question is, you know, are we... Is, where is the push from below for organized labor? And it's, I think it is starting to come, but I, I think it's, it's going to be 
the struggle of our lifetime for the next decade to yeah. to really try to achieve what needs to happen to, to get to the, the halls of power. Right. Well, everything comes like wrapped in a poison pill. So right now we're seeing so many of the right things and stuff that you and I both have fought for. But I worry, Evan, that it's a little bit wrapped up in this Eurogark environmental austerity. I don't even know what you want to call it. Green fascism, degrowth, deindustrialization. Alongside Biden, you've got Kerry, right? We talked about that yesterday with the, um, God, where is it? In Edinburgh or something. The um, They're meeting in November. I forget the, the place in Scotland. You know, oligarch environmental conference. I just... I, I, I see that and then I see, you know, a lot of stuff they're trying to get away with on the back of a very real pandemic. We can all agree on that. But the stuff they're trying to get away with on the back of um, COVID slip in the back door here. I don't want that to affect solid New Deal policies. I want these policies to be New Deal, pro-growth I want to take these billions of dollars. I'm sure you're agreeing with me. <laughs> and then, you know, build yeah, something absolutely. like Nawapa. I don't want to take these billions of dollars and build some rickety, you know, dump the water kind of thing. And absolutely, the production, it has to be mining, manufacturing, and infrastructure. These jobs where people's hands get dirty, you can't do it from your computer uh, and do it online on Zoom, obviously. And I think. The unions have shown that you can make a very good life for yourself and your family if you have a union organized shop to be able to do a lot of these buildings and to build a lot of these things that that we need. Um, but it it we are we are fighting against a uh, multi generational push to uh, that's Malthusian that's deindustrial. And that is extremely pro-finance. And all the while, as you cover oftentimes in your program here, is the fact that China is is coming. We need our own domestic production. We need our own mining ability. We need our own infrastructure. Even right now, the entire supply chains, if you look at what's going on in the, the port of Los Angeles, different places around the United States, we have tremendous backup of the logistical supply chains that we have yet to even really begin feeling. And I think we're going to be seeing it a lot more in the, the, the coming months as well. Yeah, are we? Oh, God, is that going to, is that, I always wonder if that's going to hit at any bad times for, you know, these um, Republicans. I just, I want to get to building as soon as possible, put these other things on the back burner that the administration's focusing on, get to building so that we have ignited some of our domestic industries so that we don't encounter, we don't slam into these supply chain shortages because we're relying on China or wherever we're relying on. I mean, things are, it's not going to clear itself up anytime soon. It could be, things could become more and more scarce as these workers walk out. Absolutely. And I, I think we just have to keep agitating. We have to keep educating ourselves and our friends, our neighbors, our family. We have to keep focusing on the American system and the concepts of the New Deal, the concepts of production and labor and why labor precedes capital and is more important than capital and how we need to organize together and talk to each other and uh, and and keep on pushing. You you're going to keep working on podcasts. I um, 
I'm going to put, like I said again, your um, a link to Empathy Media Lab's podcast. And I'd really appreciate our audience going over there, giving you a like click and a follow so that they get the updates when you drop a podcast on your phone because nobody's doing more work than this network of labor podcasts that you're a part of. So that Absolutely. is great, yeah. Um, and I wanted to use this show today with you, my old friend, and talk a little bit about how we're going to be reorganizing this broadcast a bit because I am going to need to take maternity leave. Whoa, congratulations. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank I mean, it's, it's not awesome that you're going to be taking changes or taking a break on the show, but... Congratulations, though. That's that's wonderful news. Yeah, I'm in my third trimester and I'm having a girl. Whoa. So, <laughs> so that, yeah, so um, I'm having to have a child and Webster and I have been working out. We're going to, we did, we're doing it the easiest way possible. Um, I tried to keep the daily show going as long as humanly possible. I had an idea in my mind I could do it right up to the day of labor. <laughs> I realized I'm not superhuman and I can't. So uh, I can't do that anymore until I give birth. So Webster and I talked over the weekend and he said, we got to make this call because he wants to work on a new book. Well, that's oh. exciting too, right? People have been wanting Webster to write, but how could he write <laughs> and do a daily show? I'm a, uh, some uh, uh, Webster's IT guy was telling me about this podcast that has 20, that they do it once a week and they have 20 staff, just like a person who is in the credits that just brings a tissue box to the table. And I made, I said, what? That can't be. And he goes, yeah, I was telling me about all the staff of different podcasts. I said, well, it's just been Webster. And I feel like the little matchstick girl when I hear about stuff like that. I was like, well, we research and edit every day and get the show out, and, you know, do headlines. Like, so it, it's a lot for Webster right now. And he's excited as well because he needs a break to work on writing and he's going to do World Crisis Radio over at tarpley.net on Saturday with his IT guy while he writes during the week. And he has a couple other projects he's working on, IT guys helping him. And I'm going to keep up the podcast one day a week, maybe two. So we are going to be a presence here. You'll continue to be on that one day a week. We've got a, a, a big crew of people who have been working with us at Tax Wall Street Party and UFAA. Nobody's going anywhere. It's just a few months we need to get through, and then we can get back to the five days a week. So, yeah, I mean... You grow, you're growing the family. You deserve a little bit of a break and a slowdown, and I think it's so important also to, to really be present as you go through this, this next uh, stage. I'm very excited for you, and I can't uh, wait to meet the little girl. Oh, thank you, Evan. Then we can run it for office. <laughs> Horrible thing to say. <laughs> but when we come back, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pause the subscriptions on next Thursday is my last day with Webster, and then he'll do World Crisis Radio at tarpley.net. I can't even keep up with working on that with him and getting that up, so his IT guy is going to do that over, at, like I said, at tarpley.net. Until then, the shows are going to be free over here. 
people would like that, one or two days over here, free. Then I'll send an announcement when we're going to be back five days a week. So after Friday, people will not be having anything deducted from their credit card anymore. Let's get back into labor for the last 10 minutes we have here. So the reason I wanted to announce my maternity leave on this show, well, it's because, you know, the timing, I had to, but also in this history of Blair Mountain, I was remembering, God, this was such a bloody battle that the, what, who are they, they be called the thugs for the union bosses? Or, you know, I don't know, these officers that were conscripted to, to, um, serve the uh they were often called the mind guard system okay they were all thugs thugs yes thank you very much for stepping in there so these guys were shooting pregnant women as well the wives of the miners do you remember that do you do you remember reading that one of the things that i heard over the the course of the weekend too was that this camp that was um kicked out of these company houses and they set up the camp and these company guards would come in and they would slice up the the tents and leave a lot of these families just open to the elements. Something like 15 children starved to death and or were um, died from the weather over the course of the winter between 1920 and 1921. So yeah, just absolutely ruthless disregard for humanity that this this system that we're starting we're starting to see in our uh, once comfortable I think uh, at least within my experience um, upper middle class starting to see it very closely and and it, I've seen it around the world and um, they obviously experienced it back then and the only thing that the the power is going to respond to is us coming together and 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 demanding something different and being willing to fight for it. Yeah. And, you know, I guess you could say like personal experience brings things into focus. So through this pregnancy daily, every day, I'm made aware that like maternity leave on how we treat pregnant women is a dire labor issue in this country. It is crazy. We're talking about these labor strikes at the slaughterhouses and wherever they are, Frito-Lay. We have women on factory assembly lines up until the labor. The United States, I don't know how I overlooked this because I wasn't wasn't going through it. You know, sometimes that that happens. Sad to say, we can't be present for everything, you know, until it happens to us. But I cannot understand for the life of me how a woman can stand on her feet for eight hours a day or longer. Some of these women are standing 12, 14 hours a day and work. I can't stand for more than an hour or two. And I'm like, what the hell is going on in this country? The U.S. is the only rich nation offering no paid maternal leave program. We, we should have some sort of social, we give social security to older people. We should have some sort of social security benefit for women, you know what I mean, from somewhere in the second trimester until at least, I would say, three to six months. I would say six months after they give birth. Right now, only 21% of workers, Evan, 21 those are your upper middle class office jobs and, you know, corporate jobs have access to paid family leave through their employer. So only 21% of all U.S. workers, if you can believe that. So that's not covering people like wait- waitresses and fast food restaurant workers and stuff like that. If you see what I'm saying, we would let a woman in her third trimester, you know, be working as a waitress. That's like normal here. And then maybe 
she'd have to have the money saved up or pay out of pocket to be able to even spend any time with the baby after she gives birth. I did that show with Bennett Cooper on all the cognitive damage that something like that causes when the mother is so stressed because she can't afford to eat through the pregnancy and then can't spend any time with the baby. I don't know what these people do with the baby when they have to go right back to work in a month. This is the weird, it's the weirdest thing. I, I, I mean, it's just so inhumane. If, 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 if you think about it, it's one of the major unaddressed labor issues of a class of people, right? That where they have, where we have just not addressed it in this country. And, and absolutely. And the, the cruel irony is that a lot of these right wingers who say they're pro-family are the ones taking away any benefits or any agitation and fighting against any agitation for family formation that supports things like providing for maternity leave and paternity leave that every other industrialized country uh, is pretty much given. And th that's absolutely something we need to fight for. Sarah Jaffe wrote this book, Work Won't Love You Back, and she traces this whole idea of the care economy and how oftentimes women have been continually subverted and and the work that the women have been doing in throughout civilization, throughout history is, is oftentimes goes unrecognized, even though family formation, family creation is the only reason uh, we can think about the future. So that's, yeah, it's just amazing. And we, we often talk in UFAA, we've been talking about this for years about, you know, to govern is to populate and the American population and how we're in population decline. And then also the amount of money we have to spend to deal with rehabilitation issues for children that have been neglected, right? There wasn't prenatal care and postnatal care and how a lot of those things, you know, are very, happen very early and all this kind of stuff. And it's just exactly what you said. It's this goddamn Republicans. That's so right. I mean, I, we know that, but like just so right. Them and their family values, you, we couldn't put, um, you know, a maternity leave bill in front of these guys and have them sign sign anything or sign any regulation in this regard. Anyway, and, it's it's astonishing. And of course, on the left, too, you have the Malthusian uh, seeds that have been growing uh, with things like the Extinction Rebellion that really see humans as being a cancer on the earth, a parasite that must be called and um, the population must be reduced. And we see these things all the time when you go through social media and you see people saying humans are a blight on the earth and people shouldn't have children. So on one level, people are being attacked economically to be able to form their families. And then at the same time, the ideal ideology of environmentalism oftentimes goes against what it is an, uh, misanthropogenic and is against humans. We've got to fight, fight both fronts at the same time. Right, because it's not as if the left's going to be very. Yeah, that's true. They're just they have they have a certain amount of disdain for people who have children. They don't want to necessarily support that because it increases the population. Holy moly! Now I'm starting to see women who are really big and pregnant, like nurses, standing on their feet till the very end. And yeah, fast food workers, waitresses, and I just am like, I I can't even. And I just feel like, 
so bad every time that I don't have to do that. It's just shocking. So, so let's um, go back to any of your personal experiences when you were up on Blair Mountain with the people. What kind of people went down there to protest or to celebrate this hundred years? Not to protest, to celebrate. One point to just add on what you just said about you seeing these women who are pregnant and working, that provides a, a solidarity with you being a an expectant mother. And what you're doing by having children, that is hope, that is optimism. And in some ways you're you're overcoming it and you're showing the world that I'm not going to allow this negative propaganda to prevent me from starting a family and to bring in a new child into the world. So I think that's very optimistic. You are you are starting a family and I think it's very beautiful. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I I worry sometimes about a lot of my friends on the left who are, you know, women in my age who just or men, you know, but a lot of my girlfriends who just say, I don't want to do that because it's just, you know, we, we need to get rid of people even left wing activists. And I uh, am concerned about that way of thinking. But that's, you know, another episode for another time. But yeah, that exists. That exists in the left wing activist world. <clears throat> Absolutely. And to, I guess to address the question of what I saw when I went to Charleston, West Virginia, mm -hmm. and went went down to Matewan and Sharples and walked the path where a lot of these miners walked, I met just tremendous people who wanted to participate, wanted to witness, and wanted to make this pilgrimage to Blair Mountain and to celebrate the courage of a lot of these miners and these workers, to give us courage in this these dark times. As bad as things are, there is hope. And by working together, coming together through the solidarity of the struggle, we will overcome these issues. And 100 years from today, who knows what the world will look like, but we will still be around. And the human spirit is indomitable. And I saw that amongst a lot of the people I was walking with, uh, former United or retired United Mine Workers of America, um, men and women, old and young. And I have a lot of hope that through working together and through the solidarity of, of what it means to be human and what it means to be working and, and what it means to be organized labor, that we will achieve the aims that uh, is set out in the American system. How many people were there at the celebration of the 100-year anniversary of Blair Mountain? So it kicked off with a program at the convention center in Charleston. There was several hundred people and there were plenty of tables and authors and actors and actresses and bands. And it was a very celebratory atmosphere. And there was three days of hiking uh, and marching along the, the walk, which probably there were about 50, 50 people on the march. And I only marched for uh, one day on Saturday. But I would say about 40 to 50 marched the entire uh, three days. Yeah, and then, that's a good number. That's a good number, yeah. especially in these times with the pandemic. And not many people know about this anymore. And then we went down to Matewan to uh, get a walkthrough of the town. There were about 200 people who were very interested. And that was an hour and a half away from Charleston. And then there were events throughout the weekend. There were book readings and book discussions. And uh, there were also events throughout West Virginia. So I'm hoping that we can take the symbol of what it means to um, 
fight against these owners and these oligarchs and the ruling class and use that for for our own learning and to to teach others that we can come together and, and really achieve our goals. Are there any books you would suggest to the audience that they can read on this subject? Well, there is a good book by Professor Charles Keeney. His great-grandfather, Frank Keeney, was a organizer of the United Mine Workers and was one of the people who helped organize the march on, on Blair Mountain. I can. Uh, I actually interviewed him a few weeks back. It's uh, the, I believe it's called like the road to save Blair Mountain because Blair Mountain was uh, actually taken off the National Register about 15 years ago. And it was going to be completely removed and um, through the surface mining of mountaintop removal. And a lot of people banded together both in the union and environmental movement and we're able to save the mountain and keep it on the National Heritage Site. So this book kind of traces that, which may be a good book to, to look at. And like I said, we're going to wrap up there because this is a subject that is uh, people need to spend some time with. And I would highly recommend that you go and look at the links uh, that I'm going to put in the headlines and to Evan's Empathy Media Podcast. He puts the link to the movie on Matwan, is that how you pronounce it? Matwan? Uh, Matewan. Matewan, I'm sorry. Matewan. And then, so you have the Matewan movie there. You have um, a couple other links, and then you have a link to David Rovick's podcast. And then people can just look up things on Wikipedia. Look up John L. Lewis. Read about him, because he's a really, really famous guy. And like I said, he was the one who, who wasn't... Uh, head of the union, United Mine Workers, when this all went down. And then he formed the CIO part of the AFL-CIO, the Congress of Industrial Workers. Look up Samuel Gompers. This is labor history that we need to understand. Look at how all races came together. And then start to look critically about how PBS and NPR and all these places that claim they're covering labor aren't covering these things, uncovering the right stuff, and then take this into your own labor struggles, the places that we're going to soon be going to in the near future. So Evan, thank you for being here today, and you'll be one of our regulars over the coming months. Glad I got to announce the maternity with you here, and I will see you all uh, tomorrow night with Webster. Thank you, Daniela. We are going to close out the show with the same song that we opened with. It's David Rovick, who's a friend of Evan, our guest today. His song is called Blair Mountain Battle Song, and it's a summary of everything we were talking about today. 1921 was the year, seems like yesterday to me. Let me tell you about what happened then, back in the mine. Country. We were fighting hard to build a union Cause at 40 cents a ton There was no way to feed a family When the mining day was done The strike had lasted for a year When they shot down smiling Sid He was a lawman who stood up for us miners That's the only crime he ever did A hundred miners locked up with no trial There in Ningo Town
But the last straw came in sharples when they gunned the women down. West Virginia hit the Battle of Blair Mountain We shouted through the hillsides in every Union Hall We're marching on to Mingo Teach them a lesson once and all Commandeered every free train to the Kentucky line Took every car that crossed our path And all the guns and ammo we could find The Union leaders tried to stop us Mother Jones told us to turn back But we had learned ourselves from the gun thugs There's a time to talk and a time to attack We had no leader, we didn't need one we all knew our way through Logan County We all knew once we got there We're gonna hang Sheriff Cheapin from a sour apple tree We're marching on to Mingo Ten thousand men and counting Here in the hills of West Virginia At the Battle of Blair Mountain we fought them the front was ten miles wide every cop and scab in West Virginia was there on the other side they dropped explosives from their airplanes such a thing you never saw they shot us with machine guns it was the operators law we dug trenches and wore helmets that we brought from the Argonne All the way from France to Logan We fought from dusk to dawn President Harding sent in the army And we left our line to them But the hills of West Virginia Will long remember when We were marching Domingo, 10,000 men and counting here in the hills of West Virginia at the Battle of Blair Mountain.